Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to Semaphore and Cut, a podcast for developers about building great products. I'm Olga, a product marketing manager at Semaphore. In this new episode, Darko, the podcast host, welcomes Ken Cancer. Ken explains how successful code audits combine the efforts of management, software engineers, and cybersecurity to create a safer web environment. I hope you enjoy this conversation and let's dive in. Today, I'm excited to welcome Ken Kenser. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Can you please just go ahead and introduce yourself? So I'm Ken. I'm currently the VP of Engineering at Fiscal Note, which is a tech company based out in Washington, D.C. I joined Fiscal Note as actually their head of security and started there um, and then kind of made the transition over to engineering management leadership um, eventually. So I've, I've kind of done a, a wide spectrum of things on both the security side and the software side. And I guess I've never worked at a huge company, but I've worked at everything from like being a founder at a startup up to kind of being the head of engineering at a medium, late stage startup. You're a VP of engineering at Fiscal um, uh, Note. Can you tell us when, when you started that role and you know how is it going, how the transition worked? Because that, uh, as you described, is um, not an impossible transition by any means, but uh, maybe not, uh, not not the usual path from head of security to head of uh, to being a VP of engineering. My approach, just in general, even as a as a leader, tends to be very hands on, and I think that made the transition easier. Because I think one of the things that kind of led to me being tapped to move over to the engineering side and, and to become VP was just the ability to get things done at a certain scale. Yeah. For the people who might be moving towards that role or maybe are consciously <laughs> marching on that path or you know, are just moving without knowing, can you give a couple of pieces of advice when starting on a VP of engineering role? What are some things to pay attention to in the first days? Going from engineering manager to to where you're managing uh, teams, let's say my advice is uh, don't overcorrect to that. What I mean by that is it's still appropriate to deep dive into things and get your hands dirty as a way to understand truth and what's going on the ground. I think a lot of people make the transition and think you know they're expected to operate always at kind of the forty thousand foot level. And um, the reality is like everyone really benefits by being able to see what's actually happening on the ground. And if you suspect there might be a problem somewhere, start going to that team standup. Like, you know, see for yourself what's happening in that standup, what's happening with that team. It allows you to very quickly debug. I think there, there is a book which is uh, probably not going to be interesting by any means to, to engineering folks. It's called Scaling Up. It's about, you know, scaling up the companies. And uh, I mean, there is that element of, I don't know if this is advice for um, executive team or just, you know, leadership talk with people on the ground. So kind of uh, potentially every day going to lunch, you can go to lunch with a kind of random person from the company, department, you know, just to understand and hear what's happening really on the ground. So it means when you started talking about this, I, I connected it to that. And uh, I think it really makes sense because that 40,000 feet view is, I think, poisonous for a lot of companies. I have uh, kind of a lot of friends who work at very big companies. <laughs> And when I speak to them, I, I usually detect that as the biggest problem because the, the disconnect between so many layers is so huge <laughs> that kind of people on the top, whatever that would, you know, in practice really mean, have complete disconnect with what's going on in that, you know. Leadership is very transferable, I think. And um, there's another interesting 
Maybe this is another piece of advice when you're contemplating becoming an engineering leader is understanding the importance of clarity in setting a vision for your team. So like this almost is held in tension with what I just said about being willing to dive into the details is um, a lot of things, your gut reaction will be to solve them at the process level. And that works especially well when you're managing one team. But the higher up in the organization you go, the more important it will be and the more often people will look to you to provide clarity of um, strategy. I discovered one of your articles where you talk about your experiences through through doing code audits for a number of years, and then you there adjusted a set of patterns and anti patterns that you you have been seeing. Can you maybe talk maybe generally about that practice of like doing you know code audits and you know how that works and how in practice were you executing that? There's a whole bunch of different categories of what I would call kind of penetration tests slash audits. Um, it goes all the way from the spectrum of black box where you get no access to any systems and your job is to find vulnerabilities, primarily starting externally and working your way in. And then on the other end of the spectrum is what's called a white box penetration test. And that's where you do get access to pretty much everything. So that's code, infrastructure, dev environments, documentation. And then your job there is the same thing. It's to find uh, vulnerabilities and gaps, but you also you know, have access to a lot more information. So our focus was on that white box side of the spectrum. And um, I would say maybe even more niche, we really focused on the code. So we were coming from uh, the perspective of being engineers, having developed software and you know, had experience there. And what could we bring in terms of advice for the engineering teams we were working on, on the security side, but also generally like architecturally and team formation and, and things like that. And so the first thing we did generally was uh, had our, our teams meet with the engineering teams and got a walkthrough of the product. Um, it's surprising how useful it is, even when you're doing something very technical, to actually understand the business side and what the product is meant for and what are the major use cases of it. it. It just tends to really focus you and help you. As a security person, it helps you understand when you found something really critical and when you found something that might be more um, tangential and on the side in terms of impact. Uh, we got the demo. And then a lot of it in the initial few hours and days of the assessment was standing up a reliable local testing environment. So in addition to that being a great way to be able to help us in the in the whole assessment process, like quickly find out if there was a bug or not. There's also a great insight into people's DevOps practices and how easily automatable their local setup was. Most of the companies we looked at were, you know, just around Series A, maybe Series B, maybe a little before Series A. And so, as you'd imagine, at that stage, there's not exactly like really baked tools for uh, for setting up a local environment. So a lot of times we were very much on our own. Uh, in that process, but uh, some other companies had more sophisticated ways of of setting up their environments, and that was that was always nice to see. And so, like, really, the first few days was you know getting up, getting access to GitHub repos, um, downloading them, um, getting access to local config files, and and setting things up. In terms of security practices and overall uh, results of your audit, how that correlates with the size of a team? Is there a correlation there that could be established, or there's probably a correlation with teams that grew very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. When teams grew very quickly, a lot of the engineers did not get as much onboarding as the other ones um, because there just simply wasn't time. And I think that showed 
sometimes in terms of the security side, where even if there were secure patterns in the code base, some of the new engineers weren't aware of them. And so we'd get security vulnerabilities where someone, you know, in the case of like a Rails app, um, someone was making a new controller because, you know, on day two, they're expected to like immediately start doing feature development. (laughs) Um, And they had no idea that they were supposed to do XYZ in order to prevent XSRF. It just wasn't something that anyone taught them. They didn't look at the other code to see that pattern. And now we have a vulnerability. One of the elements that um, that you mentioned is that kind of a decade that you were looking at, and it um, it's your let's say impression or you have evidence <laughs> that it's better than it was ten years ago. In general, security and writing secure software has gotten easier in the last decade or so, especially when it comes to web application development and browser security the level of understanding of how the security model of the browser works and certain classes of uh, web application attacks like cross-site scripting, XSRF, even some of the, the weirder ones like, you know, clickjacking when, when you have iframes within, within different apps. I think that's all much better understood now than it was a decade ago. And we're starting to find you know, maybe quote the right answers to solving those problems as a class of problems. And the way that's happened is basically those problems are now being solved in frameworks. So cross-site scripting was a huge, huge problem back in the days when a lot of people were using jQuery. That was like the thing to look out for. The attacks were very destructive. And then this new class of JavaScript frameworks came along, you know, Angular. Um, the frameworks themselves started fixing the pro- this problem. Uh, they made it much more difficult for a user to enter unescaped JavaScript into like a user field and have that be reflected back in the browser as you know untrusted code that was executing. Um, they kind of eliminated that whole class of problems by automatically by default sanitizing user input. And that was huge. Like that eliminated very quickly almost like this kind of class of problems. Browsers themselves have also helped a little bit. So Again, in the case of cross-site scripting, there's a header field called content security policy. And that's a new header field that browsers decided to implement that allowed you to specify for your page basically a whitelist of what domains and resources you allow on your page. And it's very allows you to be very specific. Like I only want to serve images from my domain and like imgur.com or something. And that really helped also eliminate the ability for an attacker to kind of call out to a, a domain that they controlled, a malicious domain, and and download like arbitrary JavaScript onto a onto a page. It takes a lot of work to implement CSP. Like they went even so far as to create a reporting mode feature for it, so you can turn it on and not block these things, but get a report of when your content security policy is violated, so you can like gradually craft it to be correct, and you don't have to worry about breaking prod when you release it. Microservices architecture is all the rage these days. But do you know what it really means and how to implement it to empower your teams to make the best decision for the problem at hand? On the Semaphore blog, you can learn about microservices and how to take advantage of features like test reports, on a repo, and Docker support to build, test, and deploy your microservice application at scale. Head over to semaphorecicom blog for more information. And happy reading. 
When you mentioned pushback on, on, on these specific points, were you thinking that potentially because security is now maybe a hotter topic than it was 10 years ago, at least when you look at the mainstream media and what was that the main reasoning? If you read mainstream media, you definitely don't get the, th- get the perspective that security is getting better. One blind spot, and I'll, I, I was very specifically talking probably about my specialty, which is like web application security. So it might very well be the case that the state of hardware security, for example, like IoT devices, maybe that's getting much worse. Um, Probably. (laughs) uh, Yeah. So like that, so it might also be that we're media is focused on like these home devices, like your ring devices and, you know, wise and all those, those companies. Um, So that might be part of it. I also was expecting people to like one counter counter argument against what I said might be um, one of the other points I made, which is like, we are seeing an explosion in using open source dependencies. So like more than ever before, we're running code that we haven't written on our sites. And so I thought people would bring up like supply chain issues where like, oh, you know, it turned out that um, a bunch of NPM, you know, authors had their accounts hijacked in NPM and people would hijack them and then release a new version of that person's uh, NPM package that had malicious code in it. And for these reasons, security is actually getting worse, not better. And I think that's true, but maybe people did feel that like on the whole, things are getting better, even despite these things. Yeah. On the element of um, open source and all those dependencies, there is also an element that more people potentially are watching. You know, if you are using something which is, you know, very popular and not some obscure NPM package or Ruby Jam or whatever, the general community and the number of people involved and the size of companies are are looking closely at those dependencies, are unless they're obscure ones, and um, more people, more things are going to be caught earlier than later. You know, right? Could improve the security, <laughs> in, yeah, in a way, yeah, yeah. At least with open source, people are looking at it. Like, how how many people are looking at some of the code you've written internally for your product? You know, not often until. That's what our company did, basically. That was that's the way you get your internal code looked at is through audits that you have to pay for. Open source, a lot more people are using it, and hopefully a lot more people are looking at it from the security perspective, and that makes things better. Do we have some maybe tips about um, increasing the, the security awareness and culture within the development team? And uh, based on your experiences through through all of those companies and audits uh, you did. One recommendation is as part of part of onboarding, just ask people to read through your framework's online documentation where it covers security. Because I think that will really be a strong foundation. And it's the best way to solve a lot of security problems is in the way the framework intended. A lot of frameworks have like very well-defined patterns for how, for example, you would avoid cross-site scripting or how you would avoid um, SQL injection. And if you follow that pattern, you'll be fine for the most part. I think maybe the, the second one is, like if you're really just getting started on your team, to find a static code analysis tool that can, at the point where you, either as a Git hook when you're just about to commit something or probably much more likely in a CICD tool, have something that can fire and um, it'll scan your code for common security problems and um, almost like a test suite would do. It'll fail if you violate one of those. And um, it's really revealing when you first turn that on. I think it's a good hygiene practice to turn it on. You'll immediately get you know 
I don't know, 10, 20, 30, depends on how much code you've written and what the state of your repositories are. A lot of them will be false positives, but even the practice of going through the list and marking things as false positives will build up security awareness on your team of what these things are even looking for. And then the added benefit of that is once you get rid of all the false positives and have a baseline, you can now integrate that into your CI/CD flow. And um, you know you can have it like your tests. It'll tell you if you've basically broken the build from the security perspective. And on the topic of like broader security uh, awareness for some engineers, developers being more interested in, what are some good starting points for someone who might want to, you know, transition to that domain from from being a developer or just for developers in general? Any resources that you would recommend? Yeah, I think if you're if you're getting started, and um, I'll split potential people into two categories. There's those who like to acquire domain knowledge first and then do hands-on stuff. And then there's people who want to just do hands-on stuff first. So if you're interested in doing hands-on stuff first, and you're like, don't, I don't care about the documentation, I just want to get started, I would recommend looking up bug bounty programs. HackerOne is a great example of this, where a lot of pretty large companies will pay you money if you find a bug in their software. And the great part about starting here is those companies, especially the bigger ones, will give you, I think it's usually called like a treasure map, where they'll basically tell you like, here are all our endpoints for stuff. This is how things generally work. And that's a great way to get started and immediately like log into a consumer app and start trying things. Um, you never know what you can find. For people who are interested in doing some more like research first and they want to learn about some of the general classes of security problems that could come up, I just recommend starting with the OWASP top 10. So I think the OWASP is a national international organization now that um, works on web application security and their list of top 10, they release pretty much every year of like the 10 most common web vulnerabilities. And um, they have great descriptions of what those are. They have examples from a lot of different languages of how you'd see that vulnerability in the wild show up. And once you know those 10, that's a really good foundation for then starting to do the more hands-on stuff. You have a great blog. Tell us where can people find more about you and your work and, and, and follow you. I um, just actually came back from paternity leave. So I used that opportunity where I had some more free time and free thinking time to start up my blog. I have a, a list in my Apple Notes app of probably like 50 ideas that I want to do for blog posts. Um, and so during paternity leave, I basically set aside you know, 15, 20 minutes in the morning to just get on my computer and start writing. And I set a goal for myself, which was to get on the front page of Hacker News with at least one of them, uh, which I did. I was very excited about that. It is, it is very random to see what happens. It's part about timing and what people are interested in. But uh, the blog is at kenconcer.com, and I'm hoping that even now I'm back from work, I'll still be able to write some articles. I have one in draft right now, which is uh, it's called uh, The Parable of the Code Interviewer. So it talks a little bit about a lot of the controversy you see about whether we should be doing code interviews and whiteboarding challenges, whether it's fair to ask people leak code challenges, where it's fair to put people on the spot on camera and expect them to code and that stressful environment. And uh, so hopefully I'll put more more posts on in the future. Yeah, looking forward to reading that one, <laughs> especially. Great. Thank you so much for sharing uh, all this insight. It was great talking to you. And yeah, good luck. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Take care. 
Wow, what an insightful conversation. It was great to learn Ken's views on management, web development security, and code auditing. Make sure to subscribe to Semaphore Uncut on your podcast player of choice so that you don't miss our new episodes. And stay tuned.